for a second Sunday morning. We're in this passage from the first 12 verses of Romans 14, and for that matter, the entire chapter, which is about the subject of issues of gray. I do want it noted that I mentioned nothing about 50 shades of gray. That has been gleaned twice. Issues of gray. And by issues of gray, I mean issues or subjects or situations or cases that the Bible doesn't definitively speak for or against. It's a very important subject. It always has been. Because at stake is the unity of Christ's church. And I don't know about how you feel on issues of gray, but I do know that the unity of his church is much more important to Jesus than issues of gray are. That's why it's so very, very important for us. I don't know that I've ever preached on any subject that has caused the occasion for more conversation than this subject. There has not been a day since last Sunday, including today, that some member of the church or a tender in the service hasn't started a conversation with me about the subject of these gray issues. So I hope and I trust that it was thought-provoking, and I hope and pray and trust that it will continue to be so as we seek the Lord's guidance on this subject. Let's begin to read again in verse 1 and read through the entire passage. And as I told you last week, when we get through reading, we'll cover as much of it as we can today. Verse 1, except anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about doubtful issues. One person believes he may eat anything, but one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not criticize one who does Because God has accepted him. Who are you to criticize another's household slave? Before his own Lord he stands or falls. And he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person considers one day to be above another. Someone else considers every day to be the same. But each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it. Yet he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and came to life for this. 
that he might rule over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you criticize your brother? Or you, why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the tribunal of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me. And every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. I told you last Sunday morning that in this passage, we are going to find six facts about this subject of issues of gray. And we only covered the first of those last Sunday morning. That first fact was that issues of gray include a number of subjects. Two of the subjects are referenced in the passage that I've just read. We covered those last Sunday morning. One was the subject of what food is acceptable for the Christian to eat. That may not be such a big issue in the modern church, in our church, but it was a big issue in the ancient church, in the early church. The other subject that is mentioned in those first 12 verses of the passage is the subject of special days. In particular, probably a reference to the Sabbath day. And more so than the subject of acceptable food, This remains an issue of gray among the people of God today. There is division of opinion, even strong opinion in many cases on how we are bound or if we are bound by any of the Sabbath laws as they are moved over and applied to what some would call the Christian Sabbath or Sunday It's not mentioned in these first 12 verses of the passage, but as we make our way further into Romans 14, towards the latter half of the passage, we will find there a third subject, a third issue of gray that the Word of God would define as an issue of gray, and it's the subject of wine, or if you want to make that broader, the subject of alcohol, drinking Alcohol, and we talked about that last week, and that's uh, been a beginning point for a lot of the conversations that I've had this week. Thankfully, I received no calls from mom this week, so that lets me know that she didn't listen to this week's sermon. Then we talked about a lot of other issues, and down we went, and I did not cover every issue of gray. There wouldn't be time enough in a year of Sundays to do that. But we covered a lot of issues of gray. And as I warned you beforehand, for some of you, these aren't issues of gray at all. They're black and white. But because there is no definitive word from God on the subject, and by definitive I mean just that, definitive Black and white word on the subject, there are many of the people of God who feel differently about these subjects. And the whole point of the text, even before we get to the point in the text that talks about it, is that 
we are to accept those who feel differently than we do about these issues of gray. Someone jokingly asked me, was I going to include the subject of marijuana in it? And I said, I don't think so. So some of you can breathe a great sigh of relief at this time. I bet many of you were thinking I was going to pick up from last week and get into even more gray subjects, but I I hate to disappoint you, I'm not. I was simply making the point that there are issues of gray among the people of God, and there always have been. But even more to the point of this passage than simply getting us to think about what the issues of gray are, is the point, the primary point that it's trying to make, and that is, how do we deal with these issues of gray? How are we to respond to people within the body of Christ who feel differently about these subjects, whatever the subjects may be, than we do? That's the biggest point that this chapter, this passage, All of it is trying to make, it's trying to teach us how we are to deal with these things when we may feel individually so differently about them. So we'll pick up today with the second fact from the passage, which is that issues of gray reveal those who are weak and strong in the faith. Issues of gray reveal those who are weak and strong in the faith. In both verses 1 and 2 of the passage, there is a contrast between those that the passage identifies as being not weak in faith. That may be the way some translations do it, even the Holman does. But a, a better understanding would be a contrast between those who are weak in the faith. It doesn't mean they have weak faith themselves. It means they're weaker in understanding the freedom that's involved in the Christian faith, the Christian life. So in both the verses 1 and 2, there's this contrast between those that are identified as being Weak in the faith, and though the word isn't used, the implication is those who are strong in the faith is the or stronger in the faith is the contrasting position. I, I want to spend just a moment and, and try to give us a, a better definition of weak in the faith and strong in the faith from this passage and passages like it in the Bible. A person who is weak in the faith, according to this text, is no less a Christian than the one who is strong or stronger in the faith. But one who is weak in the faith does not understand fully the implications of being justified entirely by faith. That our salvation has nothing to do with what we do or what we don't do. Either before we're saved or after we're saved. One who is 
weak in the faith is one who still feels bound by restrictions or laws or rules that aren't made in the Bible. That especially aren't made or remade under the new covenant in which we live in Christ. One who is weak in the faith, according to this passage and those who are like it, is one who doesn't understand the freedom that he or she has in Christ. And it's a broad, broad freedom. On the other hand, those who are stronger, let's say, in the faith, or as I'll use it here, strong in the faith, have a better grasp of justification by faith, have a better grasp of the freedom that they have in Christ. With that in mind, even more importantly than the definitions, I want us to notice the instructions that the text gives to both those who are strong or stronger in the faith and those who are weak or weaker in the faith. First, the instruction to the strong. The strong must not look down on the weak. The strong. Those who understand the freedom that they have in salvation. Those who, in the passage we've read, would not feel bound by all of the rules about special days or the Sabbath day. That's who the strong would be here, or stronger. Those who weren't bound by the Old Testament dietary laws, or any dietary laws that some within the church of that time were placing on themselves and others. Those, the strong, those who understood and enjoyed more freedom in Christ, they must not look down on the weak. The weak being those who are bound by the rules regarding special days and the Sabbath. Those who were bound by some dietary laws, whether it was as simple as, I can't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols and being sold at a reduced rate. The strong must not look down on those. I take this from verse 3. It says, one who eats... One who has the freedom to eat whatever he or she wants must not look down on the one who does not eat. Because within that church at Rome and within other churches of that day, there were both people who had a freedom to eat whatever they wanted and there were those who were bound, those who felt restricted regarding what they could eat. And even those who were restricted didn't all agree about what the restrictions were. So as instruction to those who felt they had a freedom to eat whatever they wanted was that they must not look down on the one who didn't enjoy that same freedom. That phrase, look down on, means to view with contempt. To view as nothing. 
to view one as being beneath yourself. This same command is given in verse 10, that the strong must not look down on, view with contempt the weak, view as nothing the weak, view the weak as being beneath them. And isn't it usually this way? That the strong in any area, whether it's academics or athletics or finances or business or Christian freedom, look down on those who aren't quite as strong. Really, be honest with yourself. If you have an area in your life in which you're really good, how do you feel about those who aren't very good at it? You sort of think, not much to them. They're not good at what I'm good at. They don't like what I I like. And and that flows over into the, the church and among the people of God. Theologically. When around those who don't understand the things of God, like the one in question does, there's a, there's a real tendency and temptation to look down on them. But we all need to remember what the Scripture says, not here but elsewhere. And it, it's said in the form of a question. What do we have that we haven't been given? If you have a good brain that makes you good at academics, you know that you're not responsible for having that good brain, don't you? That was given to you. And those who don't have an equally sharp brain would be the first to tell you that you should be very grateful for that. If you excel at athletics, you know you had no part in your excellence in that area. I'm looking at my buddy, Mr. Sam. Not everybody was born to be six foot seven. <laughs> sort of put him on a path toward excelling in a, in a certain sport and in a particular area. Everybody wasn't born with a head that was going to be as big as KJ's that could knock other people around on the football field. If we excel in the area of understanding the Bible... That too is a gift from God. And we should see it as a grace. If we excel in the area of Christian freedom. If our understanding of justification is such that we know and we can see clearly in Scripture that there are certain things that are big issues among the people of God that really aren't that big of issues to God. Then we should not look down on others that that feel as if they're the biggest issues in the world, we should simply receive it as what it is, a gift, a grace from God. The strong then must not look down on the weak. So within the context of what we talked about last week and all of those subjects and all of those issues of gray, if if you will, if you are one of those 
who has a greater freedom, and you may not even practice that freedom, but if you have a greater freedom that allows you to see those issues as not being the defining issues of the Christian life, that allows you to see that those issues have absolutely nothing to do with whether a person is saved or lost, then you are not to view with contempt those who think they are real big issues. What's at stake here is unity. And by viewing with contempt or looking down on those who have personal convictions about these things and feel strongly about them, we are weakening the unity of the body of Christ. So the strong must not look down on the weak. I told you that we also find here a command towards the weak. The weak, again, in this context would be those who did not experience freedom in regard to special days, particularly the Sabbath. The weak here in this context being those who who felt that they could not eat whatever they wanted to eat. Those who felt that even though it cost three or four times as much, they had to buy their meat while being ensured that it was both kosher and had not been sacrificed to an idol. To the weak in these issues and many others. The command is the weak must not criticize the strong. And I want us to hear this again. And and before I move on, I, I want to throw this in as well. Let's not be guilty of lumping others or ourselves into a definitive strong or weak category. Because there are issues in which... I would probably be strong, but there are other issues of gray that I'm weak textually. The same is true with you. Even if you don't think so, the same is true with you. One man's strong is another man's weak. And one man's weak is another man's strong. So the weak must not criticize the strong. This applies to all of us. In our areas of weakness, where we do not enjoy the freedom maybe that some others do, the weak must not criticize the strong. This comes from verse 3 as well. The second part says, And one who does not eat meat, this would be the one who say, You know what? I, I can't eat that reduced price meat. It's been sacrificed to an idol. And an idol is an abomination to God. Or maybe they wouldn't buy it because to them, it reminded them of their their former life as a pagan. And they wanted nothing to do with it. We're all products of our experiences. We're all products of our past, of our history, of our upbringing, of our environment. I mentioned some of that to you of, of my own last week. And I can't help that. I can't undo that. I can't erase that. That's a part of me. It's in my genes. It's not in my blue genes. It's in my genes, my other kind of genes. And they got the worst kids in the world. Never say a word to them. 
Your kid does anything, they get on to them. Ladies, I know this is a subject that's particularly a sore subject for some of you. Maybe it's that sister or sister-in-law or brother or brother-in-law. You go to that family function and there she is, aunt so-and-so. Her kids are awful. Never says a word to them, but she is Sergeant Slaughter with your kids. And the thought that comes into our mind is, who are you to criticize my child when I'm here? And that's what God must be saying a whole lot of the time. Why are you getting on to my child? They're not your child. They're my child. And I can take care of it. Winston Churchill is one of my favorite characters from history. And he had a long-standing feud with a lady by the name of Lady Astor. They were rivals for their whole careers. And they were around each other all the time, even though they were rivals at state functions and stuff like that. And on one occasion, they were at one of these socials. And Lady Astor said to Sir Winston, If I were your wife, I'd put poison in your tea. To which Sir Winston responded, And if I were your husband, I'd drink it. Who are you to judge another woman's husband? Who are you to judge another man's wife? Who are any of us to judge God's servant? Verse 4 says, before his own Lord, he stands or falls. God's the one that makes the final call on whether they're right or not. And even more importantly, on whether they're saved or not. And he will stand. Even if he or she feels very differently on you or from you on this subject or these subjects, these issues of gray. And do you know why they'll stand? Because the Lord is able to make him or her stand. And he does it in Christ with no regard to any of these issues of gray. And we'll pick up here next week. Before we close, let me remind you as I did last Sunday morning in closing. There are issues of gray. But there is one issue that has no gray in it. There are many, but there's one I want to mention. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Black and white, Jesus is Lord and Savior. Black and white, Jesus is the only way to be saved. Black and white issue. The only way that you can be forgiven of your sins and be made right with God and have eternal life is to turn from your sin and your sins to Jesus and believe on who He is and what He's done alone to save you. That's not an issue of gray. And you better be on the right side of it. Because there's a right side. Would you stand with me this morning and bow your heads and close your eyes?